We're watching the first major test of that Biden-McCarthy debt deal. The lead starts right now. Right now, right this moment, legislation to raise the debt limit is facing its first hurdle. As a new problem for Speaker McCarthy has emerged, the rebellious conservative Freedom Caucus, including some members threatening to oust Speaker McCarthy over this deal. Plus, Russia's capital city attacked. Putin, of course, blames Ukraine. Putin's threat after a series of drone strikes hit an upscale area of Moscow. And the trial begins for the gunman behind the deadliest attack on Jews in American history at Pittsburgh's Tree of Life Synagogue in 2018. The shooter has not disputed he was the one pulling the trigger. So why did his lawyer enter a plea of not guilty? Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with our money lead and a make-or-break moment on Capitol Hill right now. The powerful House Rules Committee is debating the bipartisan debt ceiling deal that President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy struck over the weekend to try to avoid an economic catastrophe. But there are multiple hardline Republicans on that very committee, the Rules Committee, who are furious with the deal, and they have the chance to derail it all right now. One of those conservatives, Congressman Chip Roy of Texas, joined his Freedom Caucus colleagues earlier today to urge the entire House Republican Caucus to vote no. You're out there watching this. Every one of my colleagues, be very clear, not one Republican should vote for this deal. It is a bad deal. Every Republican should oppose it. No Republican should vote to validate, affirm, and own Biden's agenda. And that's what this bill does. Let's get straight to CNN's Manu Raju on Capitol Hill. And Manu, what's going on in this Rules Committee meeting right now? Yeah, right now, this is the first step in the legislative process. This committee must approve a rule to ensure that the bill can be approved tomorrow by a majority vote. There are nine Republicans on the committee, four Democrats, and there are two of the most outspoken critics of this bill on the committee. As part of the deal that Kevin McCarthy made to become Speaker in January, he agreed to put conservative hardliners on this committee. Two of them, Chip Roy, Ralph Norman, opposed this bill. Third, Thomas Massey has not said how he would come out in favor of this bill. Now, if, if he Massey were to vote no, that could complicate things substantially because that means six Republicans would be in favor of it. And if all Democrats vote no, it could stall the bill going forward. Now, an added complication in all of this is Chip Roy's contention that a private deal was made in January where Kevin McCarthy said that all nine Republicans on the committee must agree and vote for the rule in order to consider any legislation on the floor. That has been disputed by McCarthy's allies, though they do agree that McCarthy agreed for seven Republicans have to agree on any legislation in the Rules Committee for the full House to consider that respective bill on the floor. So that's why right now the focus is on Thomas Massey of Kentucky and whether he decides to break with the Speaker and vote against it. That could significantly complicate things going forward forward, though. The expectation, though, Jake, is that Massey will be in line with the Speaker. He has not said so publicly yet, but that's what the Republican leadership is banking on at this moment, is key first step for this bill, Jake. Manu, how seriously should we take uh, these frustrated Republicans now threatening to oust Speaker McCarthy? Yeah, this is an early discussion that is happening. It's a threat that is constantly over the speaker's head, and it's something that has become more of a discussion in recent days amid the anger on the far right over this deal that was cut. Remember, as part of also the deal for McCarthy to become speaker, he agreed to allow one single member to call for a vote seeking his ouster. And right now, there's some discussion about doing that as Republicans grapple with how to fight this bill. 
what I said was we got to re-look at how our leadership structure is in place, something like that, on Glenn's show, because we can't do what we're doing right now. Um, we were being very successful for five months. This was a mistake. We abandoned the structure that was making us successful, so we're going to have to rethink it all. How much confidence do you have in the speaker right now? None. Zero. What basis is there for confidence? You cannot forfeit the tool of Republican unity. It was not necessary to do. So at a, that press conference earlier today, Bishop was, and all the De Republicans were asked, which of them would agree to seek a vote of the Speaker's ouster? Bishop raised his hand that he would. He later told reporters that there's been a discussion of about 20 or so members about how to proceed. Though, Jake, right now, the, those hardliners are focusing on trying to defeat this bill. Then they say they'll worry about going after the Speaker potentially. And the Speaker himself says he's not worried. They do expect this bill to pass tomorrow. And he said he's not concerned about his hold over the Speakership. Jay. All right, Monty Raja on Capitol Hill. Thanks to the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue, we go where we find CNN's Phil Mattingly at the White House. And Phil, uh, is the White House confident that this bill will still be alive at the end of the day? You know, Jake, I think senior White House officials, particularly those negotiating this agreement, were very clear-eyed that there would be backlash, not just from conservative Republicans, but also from some progressives inside their own caucuses when this actually came into view, when the full text was actually out and in public. And while they are very cognizant of the fact that it is still a rocky path forward to get this to the president's desk, they are working under the assurances from the speaker and from his negotiating team that they will have the, ne uh, the necessary Republican votes to get this across the finish line, particularly in the House and then on to the Senate. Now, when you talk to White House officials, they make clear from their perspective, Republican votes are the job of the Republican leadership team. That is what they are focused on. They believe that in signing off on this deal, they had the commitment to get the requisite number of votes in order to get this across the finish line. The focus from the White House has been on their own members, on House Democrats, on Senate Democrats, making sure that they are informed of what's in the bill, making sure that they are available for any questions they may have about some policies, particularly when it comes to wor the work requirements side of the bill or just the overall spending caps in the bill that have unsettled some Democratic members. Jake, there have been more than 60 phone calls from administration officials to Democrats on Capitol Hill. There's a series of briefings set up throughout the course of this week trying to let members know why they think that this was the best case scenario of a negotiation in divided government and why they think Democrats should be on board with this going forward. That said, they are very cognizant of the fact that this is not a sure thing. This is not a done deal. They do believe the agreement is good enough to get across the finish line, and they believe the sign-off of the Republican speaker and the Republican negotiating team should help them get it across the finish line, but they know there is work to come. One thing one administration official said earlier today, we can't jam members and force them to vote on this. What we need to do is educate them, let them know what's in it, and let them know the downside of not passing it. That, of course, Jake, would be default. All right, Phil Manningly at the White House for us. Thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss Democratic Congressman Jason Crow of Colorado. Uh, Congressman, um, how worried are you right now that the bill won't make it out of the Rules Committee? Well, Jake, I have no reason to believe it's not going to make it out of the Rules Committee. You obviously have a few vocal members in that committee who are talking about this unanimity uh, requirement, which, of course, nobody in the Republican conference uh, has told me is actually a thing. So they're, they're, seem, they're making it up out of, out of whole cloth. I have no reason to believe that they're going to call us back to town like they have, and they're not going to have the votes to get out of the Rules. Where do you think progressive Democrats are? I interviewed uh, Jamila Priyapal. Uh, at, uh, on Sunday, and she said that, it, that, that there was a, you know, it was still an issue uh, with the work requirements for res SNAP recipients and, and others. Uh, have you talked to progressive colleagues? Where are they? Yeah, I have. I mean, listen, I'm actually a progressive in a lot of ways. Uh, I'm very progressive on domestic policies. 
uh, and I've talked to Pramila Jayapal and others about it, and I share their concerns about re work requirements because they don't really they don't really work. They're not effective, and they're not grounded in reality and good policy, right? They're grounded in this notion that people are just taking food stamps and taking uh, assistance, and they're not working, and they're choosing not to work. That's just not my experience. That's just not my experience at all. People are hungry. Uh, people are without work. Uh, they're struggling. Uh, they're oftentimes living in food deserts where they have to take public transportation. It's very hard for them to balance two or three jobs and to feed their children. So I certainly don't support those requirements. But sometimes legislating is choosing between the least great options. What I do know for sure is that we cannot default on our national debt, throw our country into a recession, lose hundreds of thousands of jobs, and for the first time in American history, undermine the full faith and credit of our government. So there are things in this bill that I'm not happy with. There are things in this bill that I am fairly happy with, but we have to get this done. Take a listen uh, to your colleague, uh, Congressman Jamal Bowman. Uh, he, he says one of his biggest concerns is non-defense discretionary spending. Take a listen. While the defense budget continues to go up, our ability to feed our children goes down. Our ability to educate our children goes down. Our ability for workforce development goes down, and our ability to meet the complex needs of the most vulnerable Americans goes down. It seems like the only thing that uh, McCarthy and Biden were 100% in agreement on was don't touch the defense budget and, and don't touch the VA budget. I certainly understand wanting to honor our commitment to veterans, but can you explain to our viewers why the defense budget is bigger now than it was when we were fighting two wars in Iraq and Afghanistan? Well, it's pretty hard to explain, Jake, uh, and I actually couldn't agree more with my colleague Jamal Bowman. He's absolutely right. And this is coming from somebody who is one of the most ardent defense Democrats in the House. Right? I sit on the National Security Committees. I fought for our country as an Army Ranger in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, I always put national defense and our national security uh, as one of our top priorities. But listen, if people are hungry, if we're not educating our folks, if our infrastructure is falling apart, uh, if our country is not strong... Uh, in, in those fundamental ways, then what is our ability to defend ourselves with a military? We can have the best military in the world, but if people are hungry uh, and the fabric of our society is disintegrating, then what does it matter? So I agree with Jamal, uh, and I think it's a, a mistake to do it. But again, this comes back to the fact that we don't control the House. Democrats don't control the House. Speaker McCarthy is sitting in that, that seat right now, uh, and until we can change that, uh, we're going to have to find the best possible deal forward to prevent a national default. Well, it's not as though President Biden was ever proposing cuts to the defense budget. And look, if the money was going to salaries for our, our fighting men and women, that'd be one thing. But how much of this money is going to, into defense contractors? How much is going to Raytheon and General Dynamics money? I mean, and why can't any of it be touched? Yeah, listen, you're, you're preaching to the choir here, right? Uh, there's plenty of opportunities for us to find more efficiency uh, to get rid of some of these bloated uh, programs that really, frankly, aren't even in the interest of our national security. I can give example after example of things that we fund that's in the defense budget that actually don't uh, further our ability to deter China, that don't help Ukraine, that don't feed our, uh, our hungry servicemen and women, that actually are not making our, our military bases better places to live for our military families. Uh, there's lots of issues that we need to address in the defense budget. There's no doubt about that. And I agree with you. I, I do not think it's a good idea to uh, freeze everything else but allow increases in the defense budget. But 
Democrats do not control the House of Representatives right now. Republicans do. They have established that as a red line, uh, and we're trying to negotiate as best we can to prevent a national default. I mean, sure, and right now, but I mean, when you controlled the House, it was the same thing, too, when it came to the Pentagon budget in, in terms of what President Biden was proposing. But we are in the here and now. Democratic Congressman Jason Crow of Colorado, thanks so much. Coming up, I'm going to talk to Republican Congressman Ken Buck who's been a vocal critic of this debt deal, and ask what he's hearing from party leaders. Apparently it's Colorado Day here at The Lead. Plus, the large-scale drone attack on Russia today and the response from Ukraine when Putin looked across the border to place blame. And what CNN is learning about an encounter between a Chinese fighter jet and a U.S. aircraft over the South China Sea. We're going to go live to the Pentagon with this new reporter. Just into our world lead, the U.S. Air Force just released new video showing what the Air Force calls an unnecessarily aggressive maneuver by a Chinese military pilot right in front of a U.S. aircraft. CNN's Orrin Lieberman is live for us at the Pentagon. Orrin, tell us what happened. Jake, we're just getting this information from U.S. Indo-Pacific Command. They say a Chinese fighter jet, a J-16, on Friday intercepted a U.S. spy uh, spy plane in international airspace over the South China Sea. They're calling it an unnecessarily aggressive maneuver as part of the intercept. Take a look here. This is from the cockpit of the U.S. aircraft, an RC-135. That Chinese fighter jet off to the right there as it cuts in front, essentially slices right in front of the U.S. aircraft at fairly close range. And that turbulence there, that is from wake turbulence off the back of that Chinese fighter jet. Again, the U.S. is calling this uh, an aggressive maneuver, saying that it was essentially unsafe and unprofessional. We have seen intercepts like this, this sort of tension between Chinese fighter jets and U.S. aircraft before. In fact, there was one in December, a different type of Chinese fighter jet, but essentially the same situation. The U.S. said that their fighter jet came within 20 feet in that instance of the same U.S. aircraft, an RC-135 rivet joint. The U.S.'s position is clear here. They insist they will continue to operate in a safe and professional maneuver anywhere, essentially, that international law allows. And therein lies the dispute. For the U.S., airspace over much of the South China Sea is international airspace over international waters. China, however, claims much of the South China Sea as its own territorial waters and therefore believes that it is the U.S. invading on their territory, a position the U.S. does not recognize. It is, at this point, one in a number of elements or aspects adding tension to the relationship between uh, Beijing and Washington at this point. And we're seeing that play out in a different environment as well, Jake. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin in the Indo-Pacific uh, for the Shangri-La dialogue. He was trying to set up a meeting with his Chinese counterpart, China, rejecting that dialogue, Jake. So you see that tension playing out across different aspects of the relationship. All right, Orrin Lieberman, thanks so much. Also in our world lead, plumes of smoke could be seen rising above Moscow today after an attack involving eight drones hit the Russian capital, injuring two people, damaging several buildings. Russian authorities are blaming Ukraine for the drone attack, calling it terrorist activity, but Ukrainian authorities deny any direct involvement. And as CNN's Sam Kiley reports for us from eastern Ukraine, this strike comes as Kyiv was attacked by Russia for the 17th time this month. Same war, different capital. Moscow hit by a squadron of eight drones. There was a deafening bang, as if a huge bolt of lightning had struck somewhere near. The attack was immediately blamed on Ukraine, which reels daily from Russian air assaults. This morning, the Kiev regime carried out a terrorist attack on the Moscow region, and I will stress, aimed at civilian targets. In total, eight aeroplane-type drones were used, all of them were brought down. 
I want Krilya. Kyiv was coy about its role in this drastic escalation. Of course, we enjoy watching and predicting an increase in attacks. But of course, we have nothing to do directly with it. What is growing in Russia is the karmic payment that Russia will gradually pay, more highly, for everything it does in Ukraine. Ukraine's threatening an offensive to drive Russian troops out. Part of its tactics have been increased efforts to destabilise Moscow's forces. A cross-border raid by anti-Putin Russian dissidents was backed by Ukraine last week. Frequent attacks on Russian-occupied logistic hubs like Mariupol and Berdyansk And now there's a mysterious drone attack that Russia has blamed on Ukraine. Though I'm more worried not by this, but by efforts to provoke a Russian response. That appears to be the aim. They are provoking us to do the same. But this is the first drone attack by anyone on Moscow outside the Kremlin. Here, Kyiv attacked for the 17th time this month. Putin's generals now know that they face attacks on Ukraine's front lines and at home. Now, Jake, the timing of that counteroffensive looks a little bit more imminent uh, following a statement from President Zelensky saying, and I'm paraphrasing here, essentially they've got the men, they've got the material, they've got the decision taken and that he has already decided on the date. Now, That may well be the case, but it also sends a signal, again, part of the working on the psychology of the Russian command structures and ordinary Russian soldiers telling them that something dreadful is coming their way. And I think that's how we should see these other shaping operations too, all about trying to keep the the Russians uh, off balance, Jake. All right, Sam, kindly for us in eastern Ukraine, thank you so much. Also on our world leader, Ron, once again, silencing those who publicly criticize the Iranian regime. Authorities recently executed three men in connection to last year's nationwide anti-government protests sparked by the death of Masa Jina Amini last September. CNN's Salma Abdelaziz talks to a human rights advocate who warns more unjust executions are imminent. Outside a jail near Tehran, families of prisoners gathered chant, do not hang them. Their pleas come as Iran resumes the execution of protesters after a months-long hiatus. The brutal practice restarted this month with the hanging of three young men accused of killing three members of the security forces during anti-government protests in November. The news sparked more demonstrations. But activists and human rights groups say the allegations against the trio are baseless. Majid Kazemi was forced to watch video of interrogators torturing his brother. And he was subject to at least 15 mock executions, according to Amnesty International. In an audio note obtained by the organization, he maintained his innocence. CNN cannot independently verify the clip. They kept beating me and ordering me to say this weapon is mine, he says. I told them I would say whatever they wanted, just please leave my family alone. Before his execution, the family of 36-year-old Salem Merhashami, a karate coach from Esfahan, tried to draw attention to his plight. This picture of his father spread on social media. My son is innocent, the sign reads. But to no avail. 
Activists shared this heartbreaking video they say Ismar Hashami's dad hugging his picture as he lay by his son's grave. Iran has not responded to CNN's request for comment. The total number of demonstrators known to have been executed since last year now stands at seven, according to CNN reporting. And more executions are likely imminent. Over a hundred protesters have been sentenced to death or are facing charges punishable by death, says this human rights activist. When authorities fear protests or right after protests, number of executions go up. The aim is to create fear in the society to prevent more protests. Do you expect that the number of executions is going to rise even more this year? It is rising already unless the international community takes a strong move against these executions, we might be facing a very large number of executions in the coming months. Rights groups say that Mohammad Robatlou, a 22-year-old protester with a mental health issue, could be one of the next victims of Iran's execution machine. Activists are ringing the alarm. They say yet another Iranian faces death just for daring to speak out. Jake, the one thing that all activists say they need the most is to draw attention to what's happening in Iran. It's to put pressure on the Tehran government so these executions, this crackdown, doesn't happen in silence. All right. Salma Abdelaziz, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Here in the United States, opening statements today in the trial over that horrific mass shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue in 2018. How prosecutors say they plan to prove the gunman was motivated by hate. Stay with us. Our law and justice lead now. The deadliest anti-Semitic attack in American history is getting its moment in court. Today, opening statements began in the trial for the admitted gunman who shot and killed 11 people at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh in October 2018. Prosecutors are seeking the death penalty. CNN's Danny Freeman was in the courthouse today where the scene was both emotional and intense. Four and a half years after the deadliest anti-Semitic attack in modern U.S. history, the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting trial finally began this morning. Loved ones of the victims arriving with police escorts and hugging each other in front of the court. Today is another chapter and hopefully almost a final or closing chapter of what happened four and a half years ago. Defendant Robert Bowers, accused of killing 11 Jewish worshipers and wounding several others in October 2018, sat in the courtroom wearing a collared shirt and an olive sweater, actively speaking with his attorneys. All while the government graphically laid out the deadly rampage he's accused of committing. Federal prosecutors said in the months leading up to the shooting, Bowers looked up Jewish organizations and posted anti-Semitic and anti-immigrant rhetoric online. Then, that Saturday morning, Bowers armed himself with several handguns, an AR-15, and a shotgun, and drove to the synagogue. The prosecution said Bowers then methodically went through the synagogue and hunted Jewish worshippers, sometimes shooting victims at such close range they had singe marks from the rifle that killed them. 97-year-old Rose Mallinger was shot through the head while hiding behind a pew. Her daughter hid from Bowers under her body. It's a very horrific crime scene. It's one of the worst that I've seen. After a shootout with members of the Pittsburgh police SWAT team, Bowers surrendered. An officer asked him why he had done this. Prosecutor Sue Song told jurors he responded in part, all Jews need to die. The Jews are killing our kids. 
In her opening statement, Bowers' defense attorney, Judy Clark, called her client's actions incomprehensible and inexcusable, saying there will be no doubt as to who shot 11 congregants and wounded seven others. But Clark said the jury must determine if his, quote, irrational motive and his misguided intent applies to the federal charges Bowers faces. 22 of the 63 charges against Bowers are eligible for the death penalty. Steve Cohen is the co-president of New Light, one of the three congregations attacked at the synagogue that day. It's like, today is a beautiful day. There's not a cloud in the sky. It's, a, it's sunny, it's warm, but there's this huge cloud that sits over our head. It's an ugly, gray, rainy, sleet-filled cloud. And we want that cloud to go away. This is the beginning of that process. Now, Jake, court just adjourned today for the afternoon, and I gotta say, it's been a intense day for the opening day of this trial, and I just wanna express one thing then, and to illustrate how intense and emotional this day was. We heard a 911 call from 84-year-old Bernice Simon from inside that synagogue that day. She was calling as the shooter. You can hear on the 911 call, it was shooting all across the synagogue. She said, I'm scared to death, and then we heard that phone go silent when she was ultimately killed. Jake? Danny Freeman, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Let's bring in CNN senior legal analyst Ellie Honig and Michael Bernstein, who's the chair of the Tree of Life Interim Governance Committee, which is an organization that grew from this horrible uh, tragedy. Ellie, you heard the defense argue that the admitted gunman had, quote, misguided intent, acknowledging that he wanted to kill Jews, but saying he did so because, quote, he somehow believed they were doing something so disastrously wrong, devastating to others and to children that he had to act, unquote. What, what do you make of this defense? Well, Jake, every criminal defendant is entitled to a defense. It's an important part of our constitutional democracy. I think this particular defense is truly preposterous. It's not even an actual defense to argue that someone acted for misguided or irrational reasons. I mean, the vast majority of murders are done for irrational, misguided reasons. The vast majority of all crimes fall in that category. Imagine if it was a defense. We live in chaos. And it's important to understand what this is not. This is not an insanity or mental incapacity defense because in the federal system, if you're going to raise that kind of defense, you have to serve formal notice to the judge and the prosecutor in advance. That's not been done here. So this is a different kind of defense. And I think it's very, very likely to fail. Michael, you live near the synagogue. You've talked about how you could hear the gunshots the morning of the shooting. How is the Jewish community of Pittsburgh, the Tree of Life Synagogue, community doing uh, right now as this trial begins? Yeah, thanks, Jake. Um, well, I think the community is certainly on edge. Uh, we've been waiting a long time for this trial, and I know the families of the victims as well as the survivors. Um, it's a very emotional time. At the same time, we're a strong community. Uh, we are truly blessed here in Pittsburgh um, to not only have a strong Jewish community, but I think the broader community as well. And so over the last four and a half years, we've been held uh, by our neighbors and, and by others. And so I think we're ready for this. Um, and as uh, Stephen Cohen said, just leading up to this, I think we're ready to get this behind us so we can move on. And Ellie, we need to remember the context because it's important here. This is October 2018. Many figures on the right wing of this country, politicians and right wing media, we're focused at that moment on a caravan of migrants coming to the U.S. with the fear-mongering allegation that this was all funded by George Soros and other wealthy Jews as part of this deranged white replacement theory, changing the demographics of America. It seems as though the defense 
is leading up to saying, look, this false theory was out there. My client acted on it, but he didn't make up this insane conspiracy theory. That is what it seems like the defense is, Jake. The defense lawyer actually made an interesting strategic decision. She, is, she essentially said to the jury, my client has had firearms for a long time. He's been an anti-Semite for a long time, but he didn't actually take action until he essentially started going online and was weaponized. Now, again, that's not technically a defense. The fact that somebody's radicalized by things they see is not a criminal defense. I think what the defense lawyer is trying to do here is set the stage for sentencing, where she will argue my client was weak-minded and he gave in to these things he saw online, and therefore you should sentence him to life in jail instead of death. Speaking of, of the death penalty, Michael, family members of nine of the 11 victims, nine of them have called for the gunman to receive the death penalty, but leaders from two of the Jewish congregations affected by the shooting, the Dor Hadash and New Light Congregation, asked the federal government to not seek the death penalty. Is there a consensus view in the Jewish community? And, and as a Jew, let me say, I know it's troubling to ever ask for a consensus among our people. But, it, but is there a view uh, that is prevailing? Well, I, I think, as you indicate, I mean, people have different perspectives and views on it. And honestly, for me, um, you know, I'm not one of the families that was directly affected. And so it's hard for me to say one way or the other um, what it is. I think the consensus is certainly that this person has to be held uh, accountable for their actions and let the Justice Department figure out how to do that best. Michael Bernstein, Ellie Hona, good to see both of you. Thank you so much for discussing a difficult day and a difficult event. Appreciate it. Coming up, the next steps for Texas lawmakers after impeaching the state's Republican Attorney General, Ken Paxton, and the response that impeachment vote is getting from state Republican leaders. And this programming note, join me for a CNN Republican presidential town hall with former South Carolina governor and former ambassador to the U.N., Nikki Haley. That's Sunday night at 8 Eastern, only here on CNN. We'll be right back. In our politics lead, today, not much of a response from Texas Republicans after the impeachment of one of their own, Attorney General Ken Paxton. One of the open-ended questions, will his wife, who is a state senator, recuse herself from the trial, or will she join her colleagues in determining whether her husband gets to stay in office? As CNN's Ed Lavendera reports, the trial in the state Senate is expected to take place this summer. The articles of impeachment. The group of Texas House members who will present the evidence in the trial of Attorney General Ken Paxton delivered the articles of impeachment to the state Senate. It's been 106 years since the last statewide office holder in Texas was impeached. Back then, it was a governor named James Ferguson who was known as Paw. Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick says a committee of senators will establish the rules for the trial in the coming weeks. But beyond that, Patrick is refusing to answer questions about the fellow Republican who he's worked closely with since Paxton was elected in 2014. There will be witnesses and they will be put under oath and they will be cross-examined, I'm sure, by both sides. And it will be a regular trial. And at the end of that trial, once the facts have laid out, the senators will vote. The upcoming summer of impeachment in Texas is exposing the political fault lines within the state's Republican Party. Ken Paxton's allies are targeting House Speaker Dade Phelan. The Republican who presided over the impeachment vote is unapologetic about the 20 articles of impeachment brought against the attorney general. And the Texas House spoke and we sent a strong message for the future of Texas. 
A House committee started investigating Paxton in March after he requested $3.3 million in taxpayer funds to pay for a legal settlement, stemming from a lawsuit brought by whistleblowers who alleged improper behavior involving a prominent campaign donor. The articles of impeachment go further into a pattern of corruption, including bribery, obstruction of justice, and allegations of an extramarital affair. The attorney general has been temporarily removed from office and denies any wrongdoing. This shameful process was curated from the start as an act of political retribution. We all love Ken Paxton around these parts, right? Paxton is hoping to generate grassroots support like this rally held in his home county in hopes of winning over the state senators who will decide his fate. Every politician who supports this deceitful impeachment attempt will inflict lasting damage on the credibility of the Texas House. Paxton's wife, Angela Paxton, is a state senator, and there are calls for her to recuse herself from the trial. She has not said what she will do. A group of 12 House representatives will present the evidence against Ken Paxton, the majority of them Republicans. This is about facts, and this is about evidence, and at the end of the day, my colleagues and I will not stand for public corruption, and that's why we're proceeding to a trial in the Texas Senate. And Jake Ken Paxton is also accused of calling House members before the impeachment vote, threatening him, threatening them to vote uh, for him in that vote. Uh, the lead, the head of the House committee that uh, brought the impeachment uh, uh, articles of impeachment against him was asked if this could lead to further articles of impeachment, and he would refuse to answer that question as well. All right, Ed Levin, Darren, Dallas, Texas, for us. Thank you so much, CNN. Spoke with that 11-year-old boy who was shot by a cop this month in Mississippi. What this child told us about his terrifying ordeal still and is suffering 10 days after the incident. Stay with us. Our national lead now, an 11-year-old boy tells CNN his harrowing story after being shot by a police officer after he called 911 for help. How could the boss that's my life, all because of you. Adarian Murray called police because his mom was allegedly being harassed by an ex-boyfriend in Indianola, Mississippi, earlier this month. The responding officer, Greg Capers, reportedly asked for those inside the house to come outside. Adarian's mom says that's when her son was shot in the chest. Capers has been placed on administrative leave, and the family has now filed a $5 million federal lawsuit against the city and several officers. CNN's Nick Valencia is in Mississippi for us. And Nick, you just spoke with Adarian. How's he doing? He is still in a lot of pain, Jake. In fact, we noticed several times during the interview he had noticeable shortness of breath. He says he's having trouble sleeping. But really what he's most bummed out about is not being able to play with his friends. Because he's still recovering from being shot in the chest, he can't do normal things that everyday kids do, like, uh, you know, go swimming or go running with his friends. He is remarkably positive about this. But but despite his positive attitude, uh, he does say that when he's alone for too long with his thoughts, his mind goes to dark places about what happened to him. Sometimes I can see myself laying inside the coffin. I'm all my thoughts at night, my only ones. I sometimes think people are watching me. But my main thought is me dead. 
Adarian was so convinced that he was going to die that day that he tells me that he was giving his mom his final words, telling her to say sorry to the family members that he was bad in front of, sorry to his teacher. His mother tells me that she's just so overfilled with joy that her son survived that shooting, that she really isn't even angry at the police officer, but did emphasize that she wants him fired. Although said uh, she's praying for him, saying that he's gone through a lot after mistakenly shooting her son. You mentioned the $5 million lawsuit. The family filed that earlier today, a federal lawsuit. Meanwhile, the investigation is in uh, ongoing. Mississippi Bureau of Investigation has taken over the lead as this. This incident was captured on body camera, but MBI saying they aren't going to release that footage until their investigation is wrapped up. And just very quickly, Jake, we just spoke to the mayor here in Indianola. We asked him if he supports the firing of this officer. He says he just can't do that right now without knowing all the facts. We have repeatedly tried to reach out to Sergeant Greg Capers, but he has not responded to our repeated calls. Jake. All right, Nick Valencia, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Does Speaker McCarthy have the votes? The key test happening right now on Capitol Hill that may put that debt deal in jeopardy. Plus, the response from Vladimir Putin today in Russia after a series of drones hit Moscow. Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, could artificial intelligence destroy the human race? Well, AI industry leaders issued a new extinction warning. But do they have a solution or do they just plan on making money off of this until the end is nigh? Plus, she once graced the covers of magazines as the world's youngest self-made female billionaire. But now Theranos founder and fraudster Elizabeth Holmes is gracing the yard of a Texas prison. And leading this hour, dueling drone attacks on Russia's and Ukraine's capitals. For the 17th time this month, Russian missiles targeted Kyiv, hitting residential buildings and sending people scrambling for shelter. At least one person was killed. Hours later, a drone assault on Moscow injured two, some drone debris landing in a Tony Russian neighborhood containing one of Putin's official residences. As CNN's Fred Plykin reports for us now, Russians may finally be feeling the horror of war on their own doorstep. Kremlin-controlled media in a frenzy with special programming after Russia says its capital was attacked by Ukrainian drones. We begin with breaking news. Moscow and its region were attacked by Ukrainian army drones. The Russians say they downed eight drones in total, some over an upscale district close to one of Vladimir Putin's official residences. Bringing some of the UAVs off course with electronic measures but also firing missiles to take out five of them. The Ukrainians deny any involvement in the attack, but Russian President Vladimir Putin ripped into Kiev, accusing Ukraine's leadership of targeting Russian civilians. Kiev chose the path of intimidation of Russian citizens and attacks on residential buildings. It is a clear sign of terrorist activity. But so far, it's been Russia attacking Ukrainian cities. And last night, Kiev was once again under massive attack. Russia launching a barrage of Iranian-made Shahed drones. Kiev's air defenses trying to fend them off. One woman was killed when drone debris hit this high-rise building. Other residents left to run for cover. We were on the eighth floor with my four-year-old son. We first ran to the corridor, 
and then down the fire staircase to get outside. As you can see, this building sustained some pretty substantial damage and the drone attack went on for several hours last night with the drones hovering over the city center and Ukrainian air defense is frantically trying to take them down. Ukraine's military says it shot down 29 of the 31 UAVs the Russians sent. Kiev's mayor, Vitaly Klitschko, comforting his citizens and telling me Western air defense systems kept many people here safe. If we don't have air defense, modern air defense from our partners, uh, we have a uh, much worse situation in our hometown. More uh, destroy the buildings and more, uh, it will be more civilians killed. But Russia has already threatened massive retaliation after the drone attack on Moscow, leaving people in Kiev and elsewhere bracing for what could be worse to come. And of course, Jake, we are right now in those overnight hours where those Russian attacks often take place. And Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky, he came out just a couple of minutes ago in his nightly address and he thanked all those in Ukraine who are keeping the skies clear, who are working in air defense. He also urged everybody to obviously heed those air raid sirens when they do happen. One of the things, Jake, that a lot of people in air defense in Ukraine have been telling us is, yes, they need more Western systems to keep their skies clear, but they also need a lot of ammo for the systems they have because those attacks are happening almost on a daily basis right now, Jake. All right, Fred Plotkin in Kiev, thank you so much. Joining us now to discuss, retired Army Brigadier General Mark Kimmett and CNN's former Moscow Bureau Chief Jill Darty. Uh, thanks to both of you for being here. Um, Jill, let me start with you. Some of the drones were intercepted over an affluent Moscow sub- a suburb called Rubliovka, where Putin and other top officials have mansions. D- does that, assuming that was purposeful, which I assume it is, does that send a message to Russia's elite? Yeah, I think it tells the elite, you're not protected. The guy who tells you that you're going to be okay, the war really doesn't affect you, things are fine, uh, is not doing it. And so I think it's, that is part of what they wanted to do. If you look at the pattern of where they carried out the attacks, it does seem to be in the western part of Moscow. And that's, and that's also where Putin has his residence outside of the city. So it's very significant. Interesting. General, um uh, Russian warlord and head of the Wagner Army, uh, Wagner Army Yevgeny Prigozhin, uh, says that these attacks show that Russia's military leaders are doing, quote, absolutely nothing at all, unquote, to modernize Russia's drone defenses. He gave a, an angry video that seemed more focused on the Russians than the Ukrainians, who we all, I mean, many of us suspect were behind it. What do you make of the fact that these drones were actually able to get into Moscow and and uh, and damage some in, uh, areas, uh, elite areas of the city. Not surprised at all. Uh, counter drone operations have been some of the toughest uh, challenges that we've had in the U.S. military. Uh, the fact that they are, if they are, uh, knocking down as many as they are, surprises me because three years ago, uh, I, we virtually had no counter drone capability. You just had to shoot it out of the sky. If you look at the Iraq embassy, the U.S. embassy in Iraq, they are always afraid of this. So this is relatively new technology. It's sort of the Manhattan Project being done inside the military right now. But the drones are some of the deadliest uh, uh, systems on the battlefield. It's interesting. It's counterintuitive in a way because they're, they're small. Or, I mean, they're, you know, they're low, slow, hard to detect. Yeah. The radars are not designed to do that. Right. It's right. just interesting, though. You know what I mean, though? It's counterintuitive just because yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's not a big weapon, so you'd think uh, it'd be easier to shoot down. 
but obviously not. Jill, Putin rarely addresses the so-called, what he, you know, the war, what he calls a special military operation in Ukraine. Now that these attacks are increasing on Russian soil, we saw the attack on the Kremlin several weeks ago, we saw this. Um, will he be forced to address this more and, and acknowledge it? That, that is a great question. I think it's a key question. Because previously, he didn't say that much. And there was a period where he said nothing, as they had some attacks across the border. And today, he actually said a little bit about this. So why did he do that? I think he had to kind of calm down the elite, you know, it's okay, fine, uh, anti-aircraft is working, etc. But I, I do think it is a problem, because if drones get into Moscow, by ipso facto, yeah. that is a problem. He's not able to stop them. So I, I think that that is his dilemma now. He is pulled between the elites and then Prigozhin and these other people who were saying, you're not doing enough, you can't protect us. And General, let's turn to Ukraine's anticipated counteroffensive. Uh, you've described it as an intermediate campaign in the, direction, in the direction of victory, not the final battle. At this point, what percentage of occupied territory do you think Ukraine, Ukraine needs to take back uh, in order for this counteroffensive to ensure future success? Yeah, I, I think they need to get to the water. I think they've got to go, if, for example, they attack from Kherson, they've got to get all the way to Berdyansk. They've got to cut that land bridge to Crimea. A shallow counteroffensive will not accomplish what they need to accomplish. And why not? Uh, because, number one, they've got to convince the West that they're fighting hard and we can get behind them for a longer period of time. Number two, they've got to demonstrate to the Russians, as Joe was talking about with the elites, they have to demonstrate to the Russian people uh, that Russia is losing. They have to decisively defeat them. Doesn't mean end the war, doesn't mean push them out, but they've got to decisively defeat them to get the Russians demoralized and get the West remoralized. And Jill, a senior fellow at the Carnegie uh, Russia Eurasia Center argues that Putin is deploying a, quote, tactic of inaction, writing, quote, Putin's plan is to wait out what he sees as inevitable changes in the West and Ukraine. These days, however, Russia's elites are liable to see defeatism in inaction. She added, already Putin is struggling to explain what exactly he's waiting for. Do you think Putin can afford to keep dragging this out and keep going as that, he's going? That's another dilemma that he has, because, I mean, if you slow move this, then I agree that he's making on the West, the United States, the election in 2024, heaven knows what for the West to fall apart. But the more he looks ineffective, then he's got, you know, the elites saying, hey, why aren't you protecting us out here in uh, Dacha land? And then you have the rabid, you know, nationalists who are pushing him and saying, you're too weak. You yeah. actually are too weak. And that's very dangerous. Putin always has tried to, you know, balance forces and, and people. But the balance is getting harder and harder. All right, Jill Dardia, General Mark Kimmett, thanks to both of you. Really appreciate it. Will striking a deal with President Biden cost Kevin McCarthy the speaker's gavel? We're going to talk to a member of the House Freedom Caucus next. Then new health concerns about former First Lady Rosalind Carter. That's ahead. Our money lead now. Negotiations on a deal to raise the debt limit are underway right now in a key committee on Capitol Hill as the nation is days away from defaulting on its debts. This bill has to make it out of the House Rules Committee in order for the full House to be able to vote on it. And that panel, the House Rules Committee, is filled with some of the bill's loudest conservative critics. CNN's Manu Raj, who's on Capitol Hill for us. Manu, pressure growing on the House leadership, the Republican leadership, to get a final floor vote 
by tomorrow, what are you hearing from your sources about this rules committee meeting? Well, this actually just cleared a key hurdle in favor of getting this bill approved by tomorrow. Just moments ago, Thomas Massey, a Kentucky Republican, who's been a holdout so far, has not said how he would come down, just announced that he plans to vote to approve this rule. Now, why is that significant? This is the first step in the legislative process. The, the committee needs to approve the rule, and that sets the parameters for the floor debate in the House. That means a majority of the House would have to vote to, once the rule is approved, a majority of the House can vote to approve the underlying bill, the debt limit bill to extend the debt limit up until January of 2025. Now, Kevin McCarthy, uh, the Speaker of the House, uh, has been under fire from folks on his right flank. He had uh, part of this deal that he cut with the White House would suspend the debt limit until January 2025. A number of folks on his far right said that that was too much and said he should have pushed for a much shorter debt ceiling increase to give them more of a chance to extract key concessions from the White House next year. Now, when I asked McCarthy why he agreed to this, he defended his approach. This is suspending the debt limit for two years. That's one thing that he's been a guy. Well, it's January 2025. Okay, fine. January 2020. Yeah, but they're concerned that you guys could have fought this in early next year. You have not not going to do that in the, before the 2024 election. Why did you concede on that? Hello, all. How are you guys doing? Why did you concede on that point? Did you, do you think we'd be stronger at that time period to have a debt ceiling fight? Well, they think they do. They think you'd be stronger if you fought again in like March of next year, as your bill does. So McCarthy saying there that they would not be in a better position to get even more extractions from the White House if they were to push for that shorter-term debt limit increase. But that still is not enough probably to convince a number of folks on his right flank. Some of them today indicating that they may try to push to actually seek a vote to oust him from the speakership. That is an issue that is dividing folks in the far right of the conference, whether to go that route. McCarthy, to win the speakership, to begin with, agreed to a major concession to allow one member to call for such a vote to take away his gavel. It's unclear if they go that route, but given the concerns over the deal he cut, it's something that could happen in the days and weeks ahead. But Jake McCarthy is still confident he could beat back any of those efforts, said he is not concerned about losing the speakership. All right, Manu and deep in the bowels of Capitol Hill, it looks like. Thanks so much for being with us. With us now, Republican Congressman Ken Buck of Colorado. He's a member of the House Freedom Caucus. Congressman, let's just, uh, let's just start with the, the simple basic here. Are, are you still a no on this bill? I am a very strong no, yes. So many Americans over the holiday weekend were probably relieved to learn that there had been a deal struck uh, in order to avoid very real economic catastrophe. If... Uh, Republicans refuse to vote for this, uh, and the U.S. ultimately defaults because McCarthy's not able to deliver the votes. H- how do how you explain that to the American people? Well, first of all, uh, Jake, uh, this bill will pass. Uh, some Republicans will vote for it. Some Democrats will vote for it. It will go to the Senate. It will pass uh, in the Senate. It will be signed by the president. The United States will not default. Um, the, the devil is in the details in this bill. Uh, Republicans are, are saying that, you know, there's a few billion here and a few billion there that, that uh, we are saving. Uh, only, only people in Washington, D.C. believe that you can save a few billion dollars and spend and go into debt four trillion dollars more. When the American people understand that our debt is going to rise to thirty five trillion dollars um, by the end of 2024, they will be aghast that anybody could support this bill. So Congressman Chip Roy, uh, your colleague, uh, Republican from Texas, he today made 
the strongest threat yet to Speaker McCarthy's gavel. He told conservative commentator Glenn Beck that if this bill cannot be killed in rules committee or on the floor of the House, quote, then we're going to have to then regroup and figure out the whole leadership arrangement again, unquote. Um, are you on that page as well? Would you support an effort to, to oust Speaker McCarthy? Um, I, I have not made any commitment. I think it's premature to, to start talking about the motion to vacate. But it is certainly one, uh, something, when, when you get a large percentage of Republicans that will not vote for this bill, and at the same time you have the Speaker talking about how it is historic, and it's a huge win for conservatives. And we, were, we are stopping the out-of-control spending in Washington, D.C. I, I was at Memorial Day events, and when the word about $4 trillion leaked out, uh, people are furious. This, this is a bill that I think is going to be on the level of Obamacare when you talk about the, the amount of anger that the American public is going to feel. Some progressive Democrats, as you probably know, are, are they're also not thrilled uh, by this b- bill. They're angry with President Biden, not necessarily with Speaker McCarthy. Uh, if Republicans force even more concessions, it could push more Democrats away, make this deal even harder to pass before June 5th, uh, the likely default date, not to mention it won't be able to get through the Senate. Um, is it not possible that this is the best that can be gotten right now with Democrats controlling the Senate and the White House? Well, you're asking me at the end of these negotiations, there was never a time when Republican members had input with Speaker McCarthy to give him uh, some feedback on where this was going. So do I think it's too late? No. There's always the possibility of a $500 billion clean debt ceiling so that this can be renegotiated without um, a, you know, what, what some people would call a catastrophe. I'm not sure just how bad it would be. But there, there are all kinds of mechanisms that can be put in place to make sure that we get a better deal. I, I don't think, uh, you know, the, the idea of, of cutting certain programs is bad. The idea that we're going to raise the, the debt limit by $4 trillion, that's what concerns so many people. Well, how much do you think it should be raised? Well, I, I, for one thing, I don't think you should pick a date. All they did was say January 1st, 2025. It could go up to $5 trillion. I think what you've got to do is you've got to say, we'll raise the debt ceiling, $1.5 trillion, we'll take these cuts, we'll do appropriations bills and see where we are after the appropriations bills. But wasn't Massey, correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought it was part of this deal that all the appropriation bills, the normal process has to happen uh, in order, in order for this bill to, it's just a key provision, right? No, Jake. What, what's going to happen, um, and I think I think most people recognize what's going to happen is the the House will pass twelve appropriations bills. They'll go to the Senate, and what happens every year? The Senate will pass an omni, um, and actually, we'll we'll wait until just before Christmas to try to force members uh, to vote for the omni right before Christmas. So I don't think you'll see 12 appropriations bills pass the Senate. So the, the last question I have is, look, if one accepts the premise that $32, $33 trillion of debt is not good, and the United States as a general principle should not be spending more money than it takes in, why not work with Democrats in the Senate uh, and then actually come up with a compromise, a way that, that figures out how to fix this problem, uh, as opposed to Democrats only talking to Democrats, Republicans only talking to Republicans, et cetera? Oh, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think we have to, uh, and it's called a budget committee. We have Republicans and Democrats on the same committee. Um, I think it has to be bicameral as well as bipartisan, but you're absolutely right. But what we need is we need to uh, pick a number that doesn't uh, just balloon debt, and then we have to make the hard choices. How much do we want to cut defense, and how much do we want to cut social spending? Yeah, I, I mean, on that subject, I mean, uh, do you find it surprising that 
the defense budget is even bigger now than it was when we were fighting two wars? I, I think it's, uh, I, I am surprised by it, uh, number one. And number two, there's a lot of fat at the Department of Defense that we can cut. The procurement process and, and other areas we should be looking at very hard. There hasn't been a single committee in the House that has looked at wasteful spending. You can't be serious about appropriating money if you can't hold hearings and look at wasteful spending. Yeah, well, 60 Minutes did it a few weeks ago. Uh, maybe that's a good place to start. Republican Congressman Ken Buck of Colorado, always good to have you on, sir. Thank you so much. Thank you. Republican presidential candidate Ron DeSantis is on his first official campaign tour, and he just said he wants to cancel an entire political ideology. Stay with us. In our 2024 lead, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is kicking off his first campaign tour as a Republican presidential candidate with an event in Iowa in just over an hour. It is the first stop on a four-day, 12-city swing where he'll also make appearances in the key early primary states of New Hampshire and South Carolina later this week. CNN's Jessica Dean is in Clive, Iowa, ahead of the DeSantis event. Jessica, the DeSantis campaign says they're making a major play for Iowa. What does that look like on the ground? Well, it looks like what's exactly behind me, Jake, that he's here in a very key moment where he is going to launch this campaign and do his first big speech since entering this race. And that's no accident. It is not surprising that we're standing right here in Iowa, that he's going to spend the next 24 hours going across this state. It is key, they believe, to his strategy to winning. Here's Governor DeSantis himself. Take a listen. We're competing everywhere. Iowa is very important. We've got an incredible amount of support. I got endorsed by 37 legislators there before I even announced my candidacy. We obviously have a lot in common with Iowa in terms of what Florida's done and what they've done under Governor Kim Reynolds. And I think the groundswell of support has been really, really strong. And, you know, we're going to press the case. And so tonight, he's going to be speaking to supporters. We're told he's going to lay out his vision for this country, that we will hear more about what he sees as why he's running and what he wants to pursue as he pursues the highest office in the nation. And, Jake, it's been interesting to see him going more directly after the former president, Donald Trump, his chief rival in this race. He's been doing that in interviews. It will be interesting to see if he does that tonight in person, Jake. And, and Jessica, obviously the evangelical vote is crucial in a Republican uh, caucus in Iowa. How is Governor DeSantis going about uh, courting that important voting block? Right. So we're right outside a church, which is where this launch event is going to take place tonight. And that is an area they think they might have an in where those voters may have cooled a little bit on the former president. And we are told by a campaign source that 15 local pastors will be meeting with Governor DeSantis and his wife, Casey, before this event tonight, that they'll be praying over his family and this candidacy as they really launch him on this bid for the presidency. But, Jake, expect him to really uh, be catering to this crowd, really trying to reach out to this crowd and garner as much of their support as early on as possible. Jessica Dean, accompanied by Starship in Iowa. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Let's yep. discuss with my panel. Uh, Caitlin, let me start with you. So DeSantis, as Jessica pointed out, is escalating his war uh, of words against Donald Trump. He's accusing Trump of going to the left of him and to the left of where Trump used to be mm -hmm. on cultural issues, on fiscal issues. He's saying he's siding with Disney against, him, against Governor DeSantis. Uh, are you surprised by this? No, and I, but I do think he's being a lot more vocal in his criticisms of Trump ever since he officially launched his campaign last week. And that was the big question then of 
How does he handle this? Because obviously he has to distinguish himself from Trump. He's certainly trying to do so in Iowa. And I think obviously Iowa has not always been indicative of who is actually going to be the Republican nominee. Obviously, Ted Cruz won Iowa. Trump did not. But I think what they're watching for is he's built a really big ground game in Iowa. He talked there about how the endorsements that he's gotten in Iowa, that is something Republicans have paid attention to as kind of learning his lesson of what happened with the lawmakers in Florida that came out and endorsed Trump. And I think when it comes to Iowa, obviously everyone's going to be watching that because if he is able to be to beat Trump there, it'll show that Trump's support with Republicans is slipping. It'll give him a huge boost going into uh, New Hampshire and all the states that follow that. And so I think that is what people are watching to see how he's sharpening his language against Trump. So um, DeSantis, he goes after Trump uh, with a tone more in sadness than in anger. But when he goes after Democrats, he is going full bore. Uh, Take a listen to his rhetoric when it it comes to uh, taking on the left. Everyone knows if I'm the nominee, I will beat Biden uh, and I will serve two terms and I will be able to uh, destroy leftism in this country and leave woke ideology on the dustbin of history. Destroy leftism in this country. I'm, I'm, uh, do you have any idea what that might mean? I don't know. This is where a follow-up question might have been in order. Well, to he know was exactly. on the channel, not known for them. Uh, yes. Precisely. But I do think that... Um, he is well, he's obviously making a lot of these red meat arguments to the base but i think one thing that he said in that clip when he says he has he is the candidate who is able to beat uh, to, to defeat uh, President Biden. That's another message beyond these contrasting points with Donald Trump that he's going to be making. We've heard DeSantis start to make kind of these policy disagreements. You've heard him challenge uh, President Trump ideologically from the right. But he's going to tap into what some Republicans have felt for some time, that Donald Trump cannot win a general election. And I think you're going to hear that from him more and more as the campaign goes on. How does one uh, destroy leftism in this country? <laughs> I've never really heard that as, I mean, I've heard of, you know, we're going to win the fights or we're going to win these battles, but to just destroy an entire ideology. And how does one define, um, you're, you are the DeSantis, DeSantis surrogate, right? Wow, wow. Okay. <laughs> Wait a how does so, one even define it according, so let me, according let me to him? To at least Ron, Donald Trump is leftist. Let me instead attempt okay. to explain why would an argument like that resonate with Republicans versus other things that they might say just going squarely after Biden or Democrats. Yeah. Part of what DeSantis's message is going to be is not just a conventional Democrats bad, Republicans good, but yeah. rather that many Republicans nowadays think that things Democrats believe have seeped into all kinds of institutions that used to be, in their view, apolitical, whether it's businesses like Disney or Bud Light or what have you. These fights are ones that are animating Republicans because, in their view, it's not just Democrats trying to pass policies they don't like. It's a worldview that they don't like that is seeping into other institutions. And so Ron DeSantis making this argument is trying to win over those Republicans that think this isn't just about fighting Democrats on policy. Yeah. It's about pushing back at a cultural level. That's where this argument is Like DEI, from. like getting rid of yes. – I saw – I think Charlie Kirk was going after Chick-fil-A has diversity, equity, and inclusion <laughs> as part of their yes. – I mean, it's a pretty standard corporate thing to do up until this year. Well, <clears throat> far be it for me. I may never say this again. Let me defend Ron DeSantis. <laughs> it's BS. It's, you know how many thousands of times I've written sound bites a thousand times crazier than that? Really? Oh, a hundred times. <laughs> give, me one. That. Give, give me one. I, crazier God. than you know what? I crazier. Once, I'm not kidding, Jay. I'm not, I, I apologize to, to his face for this, but I once said Bob Dole looked like he wanted to club a baby seal. I apologize, Senator Dole, in person, because it was a horrible thing. But you said it. I said it. But you didn't have I Bill did not Clinton have Bill Clinton would have never said anything like that. My point is, that's <laughs> just hype. I have a very, very wide strike zone for hype, or, okay. or I'd be an even bigger hypocrite than I am. 
But what I noticed, Jacksonville, in the yeah. upper left-hand corner of that screen, Jacksonville. For the second time in 30 years, Jacksonville, the most Republican oh, big city go. in Florida, okay. elected a Democrat mayor. Yeah. So he needs to attack Trump for being a loser. But in his home county, the biggest city in that county just went Democratic. This is a huge thing. And if I were a Republican and say, if he's going to deliver me from Trump, who cost us the House, the Senate, and the White House, how come he can't even win Jacksonville in his own state? Okay. I, I, I hear you. It's a huge win. <laughs> it is. Do you think DeSantis is a strong, would theoretically be a stronger candidate against Joe Biden than Donald Trump? As a, as a pollster, somebody who looks at the data. I think yes, because I think Ron DeSantis is still not as well-defined with swing voters as Donald Trump is. Like, nobody's changing their mind about what they think about Donald Trump. They're just not. But Ron DeSantis right now, those of us who sit around tables like this or who watch news channels like this, we know a lot about Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump. We have strong feelings about those gentlemen. But a lot of voters kind of know Ron DeSantis is the governor of Florida. Maybe they've heard about he's doing stuff with Disney, but he's not actually well-defined yet. So at this moment, I would say he has a higher ceiling as well as a lower floor. So Politico's uh, uh, Jonathan Lamar writes about the concern from Democrats if Biden has to face someone other than Trump. Quote, Biden's nascent campaign, nascent campaign and the Democratic National Committee have been preparing to launch broadsides against a slew of current and potential GOP contenders, driven by the fear that their job may be tougher if Trump's name is not at the top of the Republican ticket. I, I, I think that that concern is actually well placed. I mean, don't people generally feel like... Joe Biden in many, many, many ways won because he was running against Donald Trump and in any other year would not have? Absolutely. Well, I don't know about in any other year, but yeah, I mean, that's been their argument for when, you know, before the midterms, when all the talk was, why is Biden going to run again? Shouldn't he let another Democrat uh, kind of take that? The argument was, well, no other candidate can defeat Trump, that Biden is the only one who could hear that. that would, that's what you would hear from Biden's officials. I do think there is a real concern when you talk to people in Biden's world or in the White House about whether or not, if it is DeSantis, that he would be a more difficult candidate for Biden to run up against because swing voters, suburban women, all the people that Trump has trouble with do not have a fully formed opinion on it. It's not clear, of course. He's not nationally tested yet. Um, And he's a younger candidate. That has been one of the biggest arguments against Trump being the nominee. And so that is a real concern. They think, obviously, they don't want Trump to be president again inside the Biden White House, but they do believe he would be a much easier candidate for Biden to go up against mainly because he's already gone up against him and beaten him before. And how, and how I mean, presumably they would go after Ron DeSantis as an extremist, et cetera, et cetera. But, but the DeSantis people seem to, I mean, we're already are hearing things from their campaign saying, like, how prepared he is to pivot once he gets the nomination. Right, right. And Democrats and the Biden campaign hope that he won't be able to pivot from his conservative position should he become the nominee. And I do think underscoring the concerns that Democrats have had about someone not named Trump being the Republican nominee. And I get that polls are still very early in the stage. But DeSantis does better in head-to-head polling against Biden than Trump does with Biden. We've seen that over the last several months. So I do think they're going to pull out, highlight a lot of the Florida policies should he become the nominee. Certainly abortion, Mm -hmm. him signing that six-week abortion ban. I don't see how you pivot from that to a general election. I would imagine that Republicans hope that um, focusing on other issues beyond that, such as the economy, how much Florida has thrived would be a better message. And again, just, you know, politics can be a visual game. And when you have an, you know, 80 plus year old Democratic president and someone who's significantly younger, I think it's hard for voters to ignore that. So you brought up the Jacksonville mayors. Yes. Okay. Let me (laughs) let me bring up I'll, I'll be the one defending Ron DeSantis in this round. <laughs> Ron DeSantis barely won the governor's office in 2018. Right. And he destroyed 
the Democratic opposition in 2022, right. destroyed almost 60 percent. Miami-Dade County, Latino vote. Like, isn't he on that level somebody who would be the worst nightmare for Democrats? He, he is highly deserving of my respect for winning 19-point landslide, and he gets it for winning that. But I have to say this analysis that, that somehow DeSantis would be harder to beat, I find lacking, preposterous. The only thing worse for the Republicans than Trump winning the nomination is Trump losing the nomination. Why? Because he'll destroy the Republican Party. If Ron DeSantis is a nominee, <laughs> Donald, Joe Biden can go to the Caribbean. He won't have to campaign. Donald Trump will spend every waking moment destroying the Republican Party, destroying Ron DeSantis. He's not going to do like Bernie Sanders did for Joe and get and, and Beto and Amy and, and Pete and get in line and back the guy or like Hillary did for Barack. You think he's going to launch a third party? I don't know. Campaign. I just think I think maybe he's kind of narcissistic but Biden and nihilistic. Would still be Wait on the but Biden would still be on the ticket. I, no Republicans are going to go out and vote for Biden over DeSantis. But he'll even if Trump is destroy that working. party. He will destroy DeSantis but even if Trump is criticizing party. DeSantis, right. what what the Republican would vote for They'll Biden home. over. They'll He's stay a turnout home. machine like, oh, Trump gets a lot of low propensity high school educated whites to turn out. Very, very hard to do. It's a very impressive accomplishment. And this is why they lose the midterms, because he's not on the ballot. It, he'll destroy. I'm serious. I, I, Donald Trump Thoughts? will just destroy everything in his path. Thoughts? I don't think Paul's completely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get that man on a shirt. I'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> I don't think Paul's completely That's wrong. That's better than I get at home. So thank <laughs> Thanks to all. And you can join me in Iowa this Sunday for a CNN Republican presidential town hall. Former South Carolina governor and ambassador Nikki Haley will talk to the voters of Iowa. That's at 8 p.m. Eastern and Pacific, only on CNN. Coming up, Orange is the new black turtleneck for Theranos founder and convicted fraudster Elizabeth Holmes as the former billionaire reports to prison. In our law and justice lead, Elizabeth Holmes reported to prison today in Texas after she was sentenced to more than 11 years in prison last November. Holmes, as you might recall, was convicted on multiple charges for defrauding investors of hundreds of millions of dollars as part of her startup Theranos. CNN's Rosa Flores is in Bryan, Texas, where Holmes is expected to serve her sentence. I believe the individual is the answer to the challenges of health care. Elizabeth Holmes, the disgraced founder of Theranos, is set to trade in her trademark black turtlenecks for a prison jumpsuit after multiple failed appeals to keep her out of prison. Holmes, now a mother of two, is set to report to the federal prison camp in Bryan, Texas today. The minimum security women's prison is approximately 100 miles from Houston, Texas, and houses more than 600 inmates, according to the Federal Bureau of Prisons. The right to protect the health and well-being of every person, of those we love, is a basic human right. Holmes was only 19 years old when she dropped out of Stanford University to pursue her startup Theranos full-time. Once valued at $9 billion at its peak, Theranos attracted an impressive list of investors and retail partners with claims that it had developed technology to test for a wide range of medical conditions using just a few drops of blood. So this is the little tubes that we collect the, the samples in. We call them the nanotainer. They're about this big. Holmes appearing on magazine covers and was hailed as the next Steve Jobs. I've always believed that the purpose 
of building a business is to make an impact in the world. The company began to unravel after a Wall Street Journal investigation in 2015 reported that Theranos had only ever performed roughly a dozen of the hundreds of tests it offered using its proprietary technology and with questionable accuracy. Investors and retail partners backed out, and in June of 2018, Holmes pleaded not guilty. Ultimately, she was indicted for fraud before being convicted last year. Her rise and fall depicted in the hit Hulu show, The Dropout. You don't understand the business. And you don't understand the science. Despite her conviction, Holmes told the New York Times that she plans to work on healthcare-related inventions behind bars. Quote, I still dream about being able to contribute in that space. So what will her life be like in the federal facility that you see behind me? According to the inmate handbook, Theranos, excuse me, Elizabeth Holmes will have to wake up at six o'clock in the morning. She will make her own bed, uh, mop her own floor, take out her own trash. She will have to go to work and... Uh, she will have no access to the internet, but she will be able to have the following, an MP3 player, a watch, and also a radio. Back to you. All right, Rosa Flores in Bryan, Texas. Thanks so much. And our health lead, a sad diagnosis that we learned about today from for a former first lady of the United States, Rosalind Carter, the 95-year-old wife of former President Jimmy Carter, has been diagnosed with dementia. That is a broad term, of course, for the impaired ability to remember, think, or make decisions. The White House press secretary today saying the Bidens have stayed in touch with Carter's team to show their support. The Carter Center offered no details, but said in a statement, Rosalind, quote, continues to live happily at home with her husband, enjoying spring in Plains, Georgia, and visits with loved ones, unquote. Former President Carter began home hospice care in February after a series of short hospital stays. The Carters have been together for more than 70, 70 years. Coming up, will artificial intelligence eliminate the human race? Some technology experts warn that it could. My question, of course, what are they doing to stop it? In our tech lead today, today dozens of researchers and AI industry leaders signed a statement warning of AI's ability to become an existential threat to humanity. The one-sentence statement reads, quote, Mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority alongside other societal scale risks such as pandemics and nuclear war, unquote. So the question, what are they going to do about it? Would these companies be cashing in as the rest of us cash out? Let's bring in John Sarlin. He's host of CNN's digital show Nightcap. John, many of the people who signed the statement are part of the companies that are still developing AI, unleashing this beast onto the world. Um, So how seriously should anyone take their warning? Jake, that's exactly right. These are 22 words warning about the danger that AI poses from some of the people most responsible for currently building it. It uh, raises the risk of extinction that requires a global response. People like Sam Altman, the head of OpenAI, Google's DeepMind uh, signed onto this letter. And organizers say this letter is not calling for any specific action. It's meant to unite the different people with concerns about what AI is doing and where it's going. What are those concerns? The concerns are about how AI right now is fueling disinformation. We're already starting to see this technology being used that can create audio and video that's becoming increasingly harder to discern from real human images. 
spreading throughout the internet. That's a great concern for the 2024 election. But then you have these concerns about where the technology is going. The, uh, they call it runaway AI. Once this technology theoretically becomes smarter than humans, it might become impossible for humans to slow it down. Yashua Bengio is a computer scientist who signed the letter. He told me that the concern is once, uh, once this technology becomes too smart for us to control, we won't be able to have any power over it. Yeah, I mean, signing a statement saying oh, we, you should be concerned is one thing. How about here are the 15 things we are doing? Um, meanwhile, John, uh, students, doctors, artists, lots of communities already using AI. But you have a, an example of one lawyer in New York learning it's not as reliable as people think. Tell us about that. Right. So, as so, you know, AI scientists are warning about the existential risk when it comes to AI. But one lawyer in New York, New York is learning about the professional risk of using AI right now. So uh, Roberta Moya is suing an airline for an incident that happened in 2019. His lawyer submitted a brief that the opposing counsel noticed was a bit fishy. Now, some of the citations in it didn't seem to match up exactly right. Now, what happened was the lawyer, Stephen Schwartz, used ChatGPT. And if you use ChatGPT, you know it has a nasty habit of making facts up. Uh, Hallucinating facts is what it's called. Now, that's not a fish concert. It's an artificial intelligence that doesn't know how to discern fact from fiction. It creates dates and quotes, and in this case, created completely false legal citations. Now, the lawyer did tell the judge that he fact-checked it. The only problem was he fact-checked it using ChatGPT, which said, no, these cases are real, even though they're not. He's now set to be sanctioned in front of the judge on June 8th. Oh, boy. All right, John Sarlin, thank you so much. Good to see you. CNN's Alex Marquardt's with us now. He's in the Situation Room for Wolf Blitzer. Now, you're going to be watching the debt deal vote, and it's not just Speaker McCarthy who has a lot riding on what happens tonight and in the days ahead. Hi there, Jake. Uh, That's absolutely right. The White House, of course, has a lot riding on this as well. We'll be asking the White House directly to what extent they believe uh, that this deal may be in peril because of this open revolt that we are now seeing by many Republicans against Speaker McCarthy for this deal that he has struck with the Biden administration. Of course, Jake, there are also questions about how the White House will handle the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. We'll put all these questions to the White House Press Secretary, Karine Jean-Pierre, in just a few moments. Jake. All right, Alex. We'll see in a few minutes in this situation room. But first, on the lead, part of a mystery solved, we now know why some of Venice's famous canals turned fluorescent green. And it's not because they were celebrating St. Patrick's Day. Stay with us. Venice's Grand Canal has gone green, but not in a good way. Residents first noted the strange hue Sunday morning and then spread across the canal. Environmental authorities in Venice say the coloring was caused by fluorescein. That's a chemical used in underwater construction to help identify leaks. It's not dangerous, thankfully, for plant or animal life. No group has claimed responsibility for the dye, and local police are investigating multiple leads. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Blue Sky if you have an invite, the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at the lead CNN. Our coverage continues now with Alex Marquard in for Wolf Blitzer right next door in the Situation Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.